So you, be, you can be seated, obviously. Um, so we've been talking about prayer, and I want to open with this verse. Mark eleven twenty four, familiar verse for us. I want to read it from the King James. Don't usually read from the King James Bible, but I like this translation and how it correlates with what we've been talking about. So I'm going to read it to you from the King James and have it up there on the overhead for you. It says, therefore, I say unto you what things soever you desire. Everybody just say with me, desire. What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them, right? Key there being desire. Another verse that we want to look at. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Now, who knows what that is? Tom, Tom, how many of you remember or old enough to remember when you first used your first GPS? Some of you maybe have never used a GPS. I've just been thinking about how different the world is today than when I came into adulthood. And so one of the problems that I've had in my life, one of the struggles that I've had, and I've been I've read that it's a learning disability, actually, uh, and if that is the case, I'm standing on it that it is. If it is the case, I'm extremely disabled. And that is with a sense of direction. It's horrible. You know, I try to meet people at different times. In fact, I was meeting Scott Monday night for dinner, and he's like, I'm on the west side. And I'm like, I literally, literally had to get my phone out and pull up the compass to figure out which side was the west side of the building. So you know it's bad when you have to use a compass to navigate to a table at a restaurant to meet your friend. I can't even tell you how many times I've been lost before GPSs came around. And uh, fortunately, never been lost in the woods or in the mountains, any place like that. But I have been lost in just about every big city I've ever visited, just about, if I was responsible for getting someplace. Uh, in fact, I think our first argument that Julie and I had as a married couple <laughs> was on our honeymoon, and we were in Miami, of all places, and we were trying to find, I think we were trying to find the Holocaust Museum in Miami, or we were trying to find a beach. I can't remember which one it was, <laughs> but we were lost in Miami for hours. Now, if you've never been to Miami or you've never driven in Miami, you don't know what you're missing because it really is a uh, multicultural city like none other. You, you've got people from uh, Cuba, Puerto Rico, you've got Haitians, you've got uh, people from Colorado, <laughs> small towns, um, and they just kind of make up the rules, like the traffic laws, like they just make them up as they go along. And it's like massive and the traffic is crazy. And so you've got to be careful when you're driving on the interstate because you never know, somebody might have missed an exit and they might just decide that they need to throw it in reverse in order to get back to where they were supposed to turn off in, while you're going 65 or whatever down the interstate. I kid you not, we saw that when we were there. So it's stressful enough trying to drive in that kind of traffic, especially when you aren't used to it, and then you're trying to navigate where you're going. So needless to say, we, we got in quite an argument. Uh, I think the worst one, though, was we went to see my uncle in uh, Washington, D.C., and we had his directions, 
And somehow his directions just didn't seem to line up with the map or the landmarks. And we drove around and around and around until finally we got lost. I think we were lost for what, four hours or six hours or some? Yeah, I'm trying to make it better. It was six hours we were lost in Washington, D.C. And we went where no white man has ever gone before, if, if you know what I mean. And uh, so not exactly, you know, just not real sure. Because, you know, they say it's the murder capital of the world. And so you're just not sure, regardless of which part you're in, whether or not it's safe to even get out and ask for directions. And besides, like, how do you stop at a, at a, at a gas station and say, can you give me directions to my uncle's house? <laughs> just doesn't work. Now, over the years, I've discovered, thank God, that Julie has a very good sense of direction. Very good sense of direction. So God knew what he was doing when he put us together. And I thank God for that because otherwise I'd still be in Paris, France. Uh, <laughs> she's nodding her head like, yeah, you would. We, we actually, we brought another couple along. It was really an interesting thing. We brought another couple along with us, and, uh, and the male counterpart of that couple was convinced that he had a better sense of direction than Julie did, and uh, he didn't. And so watching them kind of go at it the first couple of days, um, but it was really funny because he would try to pull it, and I'm like, no, I'm sticking with her. I mean, I've learned I'm sticking with her. And then after about uh, a day of that, his wife was like, yeah, you go ahead, honey, I'm sticking with her. I'm sticking with that. Because it's one thing to navigate, uh, like when everything's in English, but when you don't uh, know the language and you have bad sense of direction, it's really not a good situation. But although Russia has absolutely got to be the worst, because they don't even use the same letters that we use, or like, you know, so you have no idea, letters, numbers, things like that. And because they were communist, everything had to be the same. <laughs> so like all your apartment buildings and everything, they're just, they're all these white or gray buildings. So like everything looks the same. So you don't wander too far off the beaten path uh, when you're in those parts of the world. But anyway, at least if you're me. All that to say, I was thanking God when they came out with GPSs. I mean, GPSs are absolutely a gift from God. <laughs> Absolutely, right? In fact, I thought, you know, I could even sign up part-time, make some extra cash. I could even be an Uber driver because I have a GPS. I can just plug things in to the GPS and I could be an Uber driver. But anyway. <clears throat> so, but I remember the first time I used a GPS. Anybody remember the first time you used a GPS? I was in Raleigh, North Carolina. I was by myself. Uh, I had to rent a, fly into the airport, rent a car, and make it to my hotel uh, by myself. And so when they asked, do you want the GPS? I'm like, yes, absolutely, I want the GPS. And so I remember typing the address in and having to listen to this voice. And it was a nice British woman voice. It was a British lady, and she was very polite when you got uh, off the beaten path, recalculating. And, um, and so anyway, but it was interesting to, like, like, to trust this voice that was with me on the journey that was guiding me all the way there. And so that was easy for me to do because I knew that my sense of direction was horrible. But I'm wondering if you have a good sense of direction, because I've seen it actually, not mentioning any names, but I've seen it where people with a good sense of direction type in a destination into the GPS, and the GPS is saying go one way, but the person with a good sense of direction is like, why is she taking us that way? We need to go this direction. Anybody relate to that? 
And so, you know, you kind of have to humble yourself or whatever to listen to this nice, pleasant voice. I remember one person, I rode with them, and, and uh, their GPS was in the voice of Yoda. So the verbs and the nouns were all jacked up. I'm like, man, that, 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 that would totally get me lost right there. Anyway, what does this have to do with anything, right? So I, I got to thinking, what... What do we use for a guidance system in our personal lives? And what do we use for a guidance system, particularly in prayer? What, what voice do we listen to when we are trying to navigate our way through life and end up at a particular destination? I mean, a lot of us, sometimes, how many of you know, sometimes in life, you don't even know where you want to go. I mean, that's the one thing the GPS still, they have not figured out how to do it yet, where it programs itself. You have to put the outcome, you have to put the destination into the GPS. Now, once you put the destination into the GPS, you have all this information that's been preloaded for you that you have to trust. You trust the satellite, you trust the positioning, you trust whatever, the maps and whatever to get you there. Ultimately, you trust that voice, right? And it's guiding you one step of the way. But what do you, what do you, what's the voice that we listen to in life? Is when, when you know where you want to go, or even if you don't know where you want to go, how do you know the next step to take? And I'm not, I'm not talking about like, you know, because the future is somewhat predictable. I mean, most of you know what you're going to be doing tomorrow, and most of you know what you're going to be doing next week and whatever, because we develop patterns in our life that makes it somewhat predictable and gives us some sense of control. Right? But what about when the stakes are high? What about when you... Where you've been is not where you want to be. You want to be somewhere else, but you're not sure how to get there. You start listening for a voice to give you guidance. When those stakes are high, what kind of voice, what's the voice that you listen to? Is it the voice of a friend? Is it the voice of some authority, a professional? Is it uh, something that's out here that tells you how, how to do life? What, what is it? That you're listening for. And as I was thinking about this, you know, GPS stands for Global Positioning Satellite, right? And I was thinking you could kind of flip the, play with the letters a little bit. And, you know, there are just times in our life that we need a, a PGS, a personal guidance system, right? And the reality is the Bible teaches us, and I believe, based on these verses especially, that we come with our own PGS, with our own personal guidance system, with our own outfit, if you will, our own sort of tom-tom for life, or, or that gets us through and, and knows the directions that we are supposed to take in order to get to our destination. And I think that that intelligence, that information, is located inside our own heart. I think there is no authority, there is no better authority that you can listen to in life to get where you want to be than your own heart. And I think Mark eleven twenty four 24, certainly in prayer, if we're going to have guidance in prayer, it comes from this place in our heart where desire comes from. Whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you have received them. So it's almost like the believing that you have received part of prayer is programming the destination into your personal guidance system. <laughs> Saying this is, I believe that I received this outcome based on your desire, not based on your problem, not based on your circumstances, not based on your limitations, not based on your situation, but based on your desire. Whatsoever things you desire when you pray. 
Believe that you have received them. And so when you do that, when you exercise faith and you believe that you've already received, it's almost like programming into your own personal guidance system where it is that you're supposed to go. And then I think we listen to our heart and listen to our desires along the way. So in fact, when we're talking about prayer and we're talking about this lost mode of prayer that we've been talking about, and we're talking about feeling-based prayer, and we're talking about prayer of the heart, the beginning of prayer is not the words that you say. And it's not about even getting the words right. We get so focused on, are we saying the right words? Are we doing it right? But the beginning of prayer is desire. And desire is a feeling. And so if you're out of touch with your feelings, or you're out of touch with your desires, or the desires specifically of your heart, then you're completely disconnected from your guidance system, and maybe you don't have a good sense of direction about life. And so maybe you find yourself consistently lost, or consistently in destinations and places that you don't want to be, And maybe the answer is, it's just beginning to trust that nice, polite little voice in your heart that tells you sometimes you need to recalculate. Right? Now, invariably when we start teaching this about God giving you the desires of your heart, I don't think I've done it in any Christian setting where I haven't had somebody bring up this verse. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, you know, it's interesting. In the King James, in the New King James Version, I just ran this through last night. I just put the word heart in a search engine. And did you know that the word heart is used in the New King James Version of the Bible 926 times? 926 verses that you and I have to pick from about the heart to hang our hat on. And for whatever reason, whenever I start talking about trusting the desires of your heart, somebody in the crowd, invariably, whether they ask the question out loud or they're just asking the question internally, picks this one verse out of 926 to hang their hat on about their heart. Yes, but... Doesn't the Bible say the heart is deceitful and wick and desperate, deceitful, not just deceitful, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So pastor, preacher, how can you tell me that I'm supposed to trust my heart when the Bible says it's the most deceitful thing I have? So there's your wicked heart, right? <laughs> ask yourself, though, seriously, ask yourself the question. Why would we, out of 926 verses, pick that one to hang our hat on? A lot of it, I think, has to do with our Western Latin Christian tradition since St. Augustine, who formulated, he didn't originate it, but he crystallized the idea in not just Christian thinking, but really as a foundation for all of Western philosophy, the idea of original sin. So that, that post-Augustine or post-4th century, sin is now not just something that you do, but it's something that you are. That the sinful actions that you and I might commit, they're simply the byproduct of us being poisoned and sinful and totally corrupt. <laughs> Even as a baby, you come in just, just wired for sin. 
And so we end up with, with sort of the advice in the church because, because sin is the result of your nature and that nature flows most, uh, del- Let's see, how do I say this? That nature flows from your heart. So, so sin flows out of your nature, who you are, and the fountain of that nature, that fountain of sin is your heart. And so your heart is wicked, your heart is desperately evil, deceitful, and it's the source of all evil and wicked things. How many of us ever heard something like that? <laughs> Preached. So it makes sense then, if that's true, then the exact opposite of what I've been saying is what you should do, and that is do not follow your heart. Right? So, the focus of Christianity, really, for the last 1,500 years in the West, has been on sin and redemption. Or fall redemption spirituality. Now, you've been here long enough to know that, you know, we've placed a lot of emphasis on the fall and redemption and and all these different things, right? But what's happened to us in the West is that we've gotten this tunnel vision that we think all the Bible talks about is sin and redemption. And that's absolutely not true. Or we think the whole reason that Jesus came, the whole reason He came was to rescue us from the fall and to deal with our sin. That's the whole reason He came. But that's also not biblical. And then when you're, when you're so zeroed in on that and your whole spirituality, your whole sense of spirituality in life comes from sin and redemption, then all of life is framed up for you as this struggle against sin. You're supposed to struggle against sin and resist the evil and do what's right, right? But our, our problem is, is that if, if we're sinful, think about this. Think about this logic, okay? Everything about what God did is focused on sin. Everything about what God said is focused on sin. And everything in life is a battle against sin. And oh, by the way, you are sin. How does that not put you totally at war with yourself? And how does it not alienate you from yourself? And even more so, alienate you and me from our own hearts? So Augustine started with this idea of original sin. And and John Calvin, during the Reformation, he took it even further and came up with the doctrine of total depravity. It says that the human being is born totally depraved, totally corrupt. So all you want to do is sin, sin, sin. That's all you, that, that's the inclination of your heart is to sin. <laughs> and he went so far as to say that, that the human being has no inherent, has no power inherent within their nature to do good or to choose good and has no power within their nature to even choose God or to choose repentance. And so therefore, God by His sovereign grace, this is how we got actually the doctrine of predestination. Because we say God by, that all of humanity is so corrupt that they cannot choose God. So the only way someone can choose God is if God by His sovereign grace first chooses them to choose Him. I'm going to say that again. You've heard the doctrine of predestination, that God chooses some to be saved and some not to be saved. 
That actually is rooted in this idea of total depravity. Because if you're so depraved that you cannot choose God, then God has to first choose you. Which means you're actually saved by the sovereign grace and the sovereign choosing of God who chooses you to empower you to choose Him. Does that make sense? All of that comes out. And so this is kind of how we've been taught to think and taught to believe. But what's really fascinating is, you know, they've made some really, they've made progress. Like any field of study. Aren't you glad medicine has made progress since George Washington? It's amazing to me to go, when we were in D.C., to go to, I think it was Washington's home or something. Yeah, Martha, well, wherever, I don't know. Wherever it was. It was about George. My grandma, who did genealogy, told me he was a distant cousin of ours, but I don't know. Everybody's grandma has you related to somebody famous, I'm sure. But it was amazing to me that, you know, you know what killed George Washington was strep throat. But it actually probably wasn't the strep throat that killed him as much as it was the treatment, because you know what their solution, their cure for strep throat was back then? They bled you. They cut open your veins, your arteries, and they let you bleed out because the idea was you'd get rid of the bad blood or the bad infection or whatever. We know now that you have white blood cells that actually fight off infection. So if you're bleeding yourself out, you're actually kind of going in the wrong direction. So how many of you are really thankful that that field did not stay stuck and actually made progress? Did you know, I know this could be a shock to a lot of people, but there has actually been progress made in biblical scholasticism. And not all Bible scholars went to the cemetery to learn or uh, are dry and dead and without the Spirit. Yeah, I said that. Not all Bible scholars went to the cemetery to learn. Seminary. <laughs> but that's how we kid about them when we got filled with the Spirit, right? Well, I, didn't, I, I got my Bible degree online. I didn't have to go to cemetery. Anyway. So, kind of an interesting thing. I wish I would have remembered. I wish I would have remembered to call my mom or my wife and say, hey, bring it. But I have, I have two NIV Bibles at home. The one is the first real Bible, study Bible. It's the first study Bible I was ever given. Two NIV study Bibles. That was 1989. It's falling apart. Absolutely falling apart. And I devoured that. Memorized scripture, highlighted, wrote notes, whatever. And then just a couple of years ago, Nick and Joanne gave me a brand new NIV study Bible. And so I have the old one, I have the new one. And I started reading the new one, and I thought, wow, this is a totally different translation. And so I got out my old one, and I started comparing, and sure enough, totally, totally retranslated the NIV in some places. And you know what it was the most significant to me? In the old NIV, it would say this. In places like Romans chapter 8, it would say, if you walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the desires of the sinful nature. And all this, you know, Romans 8, like, 5 through 13, like sinful nature. Your sinful nature is mentioned like 10 times. (laughs) Galatians chapter 5, it talks about your sin nature warring against the Spirit, right? They totally took all that out. Now it doesn't say that anymore. In fact, I did a search on sin nature in the new NIV translation. It doesn't exist. Why? Because it's a consensus now, even among conservative scholars and translators, that the Bible nowhere teaches that humanity has a sin nature. Now, one of the guys that was kind of on the ahead of the curve on this is a, is a man by the name of Matthew Fox. 
Matthew Fox made this observation back in the 1970s. He said what he calls fall-slash-redemption spirituality. Now, we're not denying... Let me just pause for a second. Look at me for a second before we read the quote. I'm not denying the fall or redemption. I'm just saying that's not all there is. And so Matthew Fox says, fall-redemption spirituality does not teach believers about the new creation. Or about creativity, about justice making and social transformation, or about play, pleasure, and the God of delight. The tradition has not proven friendly to artists, or prophets, or Native American peoples, or to women. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, if we want to stay with... um, Jeremiah 17.9, said, well, the heart's deceitful and wicked. We have to look at some things that another Matthew said, the Matthew that wrote the Bible, (laughs) quoting Jesus. We have to look at some of the things that Jesus said, because what Jesus says actually doesn't square with this idea of original sin or total depravity, or even that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Here in Matthew 13.15, Jesus says, the heart of this people has become dull. Not that it was dull or that it was born dull or that it was born corrupt. It implies a process that occurred over time. It has become dull. That means it didn't originate that way. Do you see it? The heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And watch this. Understand with their heart and return. And I would heal them. Rather than saying the heart is the problem and living from the heart is the problem, Jesus flips it on its head and says, no, actually the problem is is that you've become dull to your heart. You've, you've lost connection with your heart. And by losing connection with your heart, it's, it's, in, it's prevented you from having sensory experiences of being able to see and being able to hear. In other words, you can't fully enter into experiencing and enjoying the life that God has given you on this earth. How many of you remember the, you know, maybe the first time you fell in love or maybe the first time uh, a, a child was born or, or some significant event happened that delighted your heart and you went outside and the grass was greener and the sky was bluer and the birds were singing a little more clearly or whatever? What happened? In those moments, you become awake to your heart. Your heart is less dull. And when you become awake to your heart, you become more alive to sensory experiences. And there's whole parts of the church that teach that you shouldn't even have a sensory experience. Because I walk not by what I see, and not by what I hear, and not by what I feel, but what I believe. And what I believe is all up here. And so somehow, having senses is evil in and of itself. And the other problem is, is if you believe your nature is evil, you go totally at war with yourself. How are you supposed to win? Who's the self that's supposed to win against you? If you have to be at war with yourself, if you have to resist sin and sin is in you, then who's the you that does the resisting? Or how about this one? A good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things. Jesus didn't say a born-again man. He didn't say a saved man. He didn't say a redeemed man. He said a good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things. If the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, how could Jesus make such a statement? 
before the cross, before the Holy Spirit's given, before the new birth, before redemption, before any of that, Jesus said this. He's making a statement about life. He's not saying they will. If it was only possible after redemption, then he'd be saying the good man out of the good treasure of his heart will bring forth good things. Do you see it putting it off into the future? But he's stating something about life. So how do we deal with this verse? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Because after all, if that's true, then everything I'm telling you, why would you listen? And it's why so many object when we start talking about getting in touch with the heart and trusting the desires that are in the heart. What if I told you, this is where I have to kind of shift and get to a different set of notes. Give me just a second here. What if I told you that that is a 4th century edit of that verse and not what it originally said? Funny that that verse would be edited about the same time that Augustine's doctrine of original sin is starting to gain traction. But let's just, I'll give you something simple that you can do on the internet. You you can go to uh, BibleGateway.com or BlueLetterBible.com, one of these sites, and it'll, it'll show you kind of the Hebrew-English stuff and if you click on the hebrew part or there's a there's a concordance tool out there called an englishman's concordance and what it'll do is it'll take the the word from the original language and run it all the way through the english and show you all the different ways that translators translated it because there's very few words in any translation where the word is translated consistently the same every time and that's not because translators had some wicked intent in their heart. They wanted to deceive you. It's not because the Antichrist is ruling. And it's not because there's orchestrating some one world government somewhere. Or one world church. It's not that. It's because it's just the limitations of language. Anybody that knows anything about language knows you can't do that. You have to, you're trying to get the meaning. And sometimes that meaning changes. And so sometimes that means you have to use different words. Right? But here's the interesting thing. The word for deceitful is only translated one time as deceitful in the Hebrew Bible, and that's in Jeremiah 17.9. And every other place, you can't even try to make it say something deceitful. It doesn't mean that at all. Usually it has to do with, with treading or walking or steps. Because the root of the word for deceitful in Jeremiah 17.9 is the word where we get heel, like the heel of your foot. And so you ask yourself naturally, well, how did they get from heel to deception? Well, there was rabbis, third century rabbis, that were looking for mystical interpretations of the scripture. And when they saw heel, their mind went to Jacob. And when their mind went to Jacob, their mind went to being a deceiver. And so they chose to translate that as deception rather than as something more related to the heel. Interesting, isn't it? Wicked. Wicked is translated one time as wicked. The Hebrew word here is only translated one time as wicked, and it's right here in this verse. Every other place where this word wicked is translated, it doesn't have any moral connotations at all. It actually means to be fragile, to be sensitive, to be easily harmed. 
Now, how did we end up with this wrong translation of this verse? So to understand that, let me just, I'm giving you Bible lessons, kind of my Bible nerd is coming out, so just bear with me for five more minutes. Do you realize your first English translations were not translated from the original languages? They were not translated originally from Hebrew and from Greek. They were translated from the Latin translation. And the Latin translation originated in the fourth century. And we know today that there were a lot of mistakes in the Latin translation. That things didn't necessarily translate well from the Hebrew into the Latin. And so actually this, this whole thing got into the Latin translations in the fourth century and then later got into our English translations because they took it from the Latin rather than from the original language. But did you know that we have access to manuscripts that are older than our English manuscripts and older than the Latin manuscripts? That we actually have access to a translation that was done three centuries before the time of Christ. And it's called the Septuagint. How many of you have ever heard of the Septuagint? Okay, this is definitely my Bible nerd time. But The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So when Alexander the Great conquers the world, he institutes a common language of Koine Greek. Right? And so then, one of the rulers pulls together 70, the word Septuagint means 70, pulls together actually 72 rabbis who are experts in the Hebrew and the Koine Greek language, and they say, we want you to translate your scriptures into Koine Greek. And so they translate it into Greek, and it becomes the Septuagint. Now, here's why the Septuagint is important, because Koine Greek is the language that's being spoken at the time of Jesus and at the time of the apostles. The Septuagint is the translation that the writers of your scriptures, Matthew, Mark, the writer of Hebrews, the, uh, Paul in his writings, actually quote directly from the Septuagint when they're quoting. They don't quote from the Hebrew or from the Aramaic, which was another language that was being spoken at the time. Your early church fathers, the earliest of the church fathers, the first two centuries, those that were the least removed from Jesus and the apostles, they only used the Septuagint in their translations. Now, doesn't it make sense then that 70 Hebrew scholars translating in 300 B.C. might get the meaning closer to the original Hebrew than English translators translating from the Latin several centuries later? I mean, call me crazy. You know how the Septuagint translates this verse? Translates it like this. The heart is deeper than all things and is human. Who can know it? The heart is deeper than all things, and it is human. Who can know it? What if that verse had been translated correctly? See, it's amazing to me. Think about this for a minute. 926 verses on the heart, and we pull up one verse that says, Oh, my heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Deceitful above all things and wicked. Who can know it? And we pull out that one verse, we hang our hat on it, and it's a lousy translation. It doesn't even say that. What if we had translated it correctly? The heart is deeper than all things, and it's human or it's sensitive. It's, it's fragile. Who can know it? 
be interesting, wouldn't it, to think how things might be a little bit different. See, if Jesus said, whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe you receive them, you can have them. Maybe Jesus thought you could trust your heart. And maybe Jesus thought you could trust the desires of your heart. If you go back several months, if you were here, when we were talking about your destiny code or your destiny scroll or the story inside you, the reality is is that God knew you before the foundation of the world. God chose you. And God wrote, pre-programmed, put all the information that you need to be able to be who He created you to be and to fulfill what He created you to fulfill and put it all inside your life. That no one else really can tell you how to be you. Another verse that we've horribly abused, (laughs) and I've been guilty of it, but it's Proverbs 23, verse 7. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It's been picked up by positive thinking types. And anytime we teach on the power of the mind or power of positive thinking or whatever, we want to use that verse. Right? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. But that verse isn't teaching that. What it's teaching is, is that the real you, the authentic you, the you that was chosen, the you that was created, the you that was redeemed, the you that was saved, is buried in the heart. Behind all of these false expectations and masks and trying to fit into social structures of family and politics and religion and whatever else, and losing ourselves in the process. You know, they found a parable that Jesus taught. The scholars today say Jesus probably did say this, but it didn't make it into our Bibles. I don't know why it didn't make it into our Bibles. We didn't even know it existed until they found the Nag Hammadi libraries in the 20th century. And then it took them a while to translate the Nag Hammadi libraries so that it could get down to even where even scholars could read it in English. And then it takes scholars forever to get stuff down to pastors and pastors forever to get it in the pulpits or whatever. But there was a parable that Jesus taught. It didn't make it into our translations or into our Bibles, but, but Jesus said that, that he talked about a woman who's carrying a, 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 a pot with her full of meal, full of bread. And somewhere along the way, the pot breaks. And while she's walking, all this bread falls out behind her. And she finally gets to her destination. And she opens up the pot and it's empty. <laughs> And what a parable for us about life. See, if we think, even if we just think somehow we're fatally flawed, then we, we wind up compromising things about ourselves, not living true to our own heart, not allowing our true self, because as you think in your heart, so are you. And so allowing that true self, living from the heart, and allowing that true self to emerge from the heart, and listening to that personal guidance system that God put inside you that's in your heart, listening to that and walking by that... And and so somewhere along the way, we begin to feel empty and depleted, and we arrive and look in our jar, and there's nothing there. That's why Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the world but lose his soul? See, if you are pre-programmed by your sin redemption thinking, then all you think about when you hear, what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul, you're thinking about hell. You're thinking about going out and enjoying all the pleasures of life because this world is sin-cursed. Go out and enjoy all the pleasures of life, but you're going to go to hell. But you're putting that on that verse. Actually, what Jesus is saying is, what good does it do you if you do everything you have to do to fit inside the social power structures, but in the process lose who you are? I 
And so the Bible, Jesus, the teachings of Christ, the gospel, calls us back to our authentic self that emerges out of our heart, and our desires are part of that. And one of the things the Holy Spirit, I believe with all my heart, what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church, not just here, but in other places as well, I'm hearing it from other places, what He's saying is, is it's time for us to recover uh, an, an understanding of the gospel that's broader than just sinful redemption. That allows us to recover our authentic selves. And perhaps our guidance, perhaps our prayers don't get answered because we're not following the guidance system that God gave us for our prayers, which is the desires that are coming forth from our hearts. So my intent today was if there's some, if there's been some religious stumbling block in your mind that says, I can't trust what's down there, uh, and, and you're, and you're stuck on that verse, my, my goal this morning, nothing else was to help you get unstuck. <laughs> but, you know, words are interesting things. Let me just throw a couple more things out. The word desire comes from a French word. This is so interesting. It comes from a French word that means from the stars. And it also means something is missing. So let's put these two together. Understand, this is an ancient etymology of this verse, uh, this word. It comes out of ancient origins, and it comes from people who believed in astrology, or who believed that the stars and the horoscopes and the zodiacs were determining your destiny, and that your destiny was determined at birth. So what are they saying then? And then they're saying desire reveals something's missing. So it's like, it's like, they're saying the same thing. They're saying this is your guidance system that you came prepackaged and pre-programmed with, and the fact that you want it means that it's there for you. The fact that you feel like it's missing has to be honored <laughs> because it's out there for you. Now, we don't believe the stars pre-programmed you, but I believe God pre-programmed you. I think we could change the word and say, instead of saying from the stars, we could say from the heavens. Our word love comes from a Germanic word, a Germanic word that means desire. So how can you and I love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves, and not trust desire? And not have desire. So the beginning of prayer is not words. And it's not bowing your head and folding your hands and closing your eyes. Prayer begins by finding your heart. And then getting in touch with the desires that are really there. As a sort of a guidance system of what's missing but you were meant to have. And work from there. And if you can't do that, you can't pray. Now I want to be clear, living from the heart is different than living life on a whim. I'm not talking about living on a whim. I'm, I'm not talking about just an impulse. I'm not talking about a lust. I'm talking about something that requires honesty, authenticity, integrity, and deliberation. 
Because your heart won't lead you astray. Your impulses might, your emotions might, your lusts, whatever, might lead you astray. But the heart, the voice of the heart, is always a guidance system that can be trusted. I mean, how many of you have not had the urge to hurt somebody? Am I the only one? The urge has had the urge to want to hurt somebody. What did I say? Oh, not. How? Sorry. Thank you. How many of you have had the urge at some time in your life to hurt somebody? That's probably why nobody raised their hand in the first service, too. How many of you ever watch the true crime drama shows and you sit there and think, hmm, maybe I should take notes? This is, this is do it yourself right here. Is that your heart really that's speaking to you? Or is that something else? So it, it is a process. Of learning, And that's one of the reasons we do have the scriptures, because the scriptures help us kind of sort through and sort out what is our authentic self and what is coming from ego-driven, false self urges and wants and needs. One of the ways that I can tell the difference is if there's desperation to it. It's coming out of ego. Because your ego, your false self, always feels cut off from what you want. But when there is, when it's flowing from a sense of abundance, when it's flowing from a sense of possibility, when it's flowing from a sense of joy and faith, and it's consistent with love God, Love your neighbor, love yourself. Man, you struck gold. Does that make sense? Does that help you? So always remember to follow your heart, but take your brain with you. (laughs) Because God did give you a brain. As well as a heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your people. Thank you for today. Help us to live awake to our hearts. Help us to live fully alive. Help us to discover those things that are missing that you desire for us to have. In Jesus' name. Amen.